We have inside of us this thirst for satisfaction because deep down inside, we all know this, we're not yet totally happy. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. This is it, right? One week left, seven days. Y'all got dinners to prepare and presents to wrap. Some of you still have presents to buy. You know who you are. Prime ain't delivering by Christmas anymore. Good luck. Uh, You got bags to pack and trips to plan and parents to appease. I mean, it is all building toward Christmas Day, right? December 25th, which is probably the day of the year more than any other that is hyped and branded to appeal to our better angels. I mean, this day is just injected with expectations of sentimentality and excitement and warmth and affection and nostalgia and gratitude, which is also why perhaps more than any other day, Christmas also comes with disappointment. You know that feeling, right? Like you know the moment when you wake up the day after Christmas, December the 26th. Twas the day after Christmas, and all through the house, there was a post-party fog on your kids and your spouse. The stockings are empty, the house is a mess, the in-laws won't leave, and now you're just stressed. The sink's full of dishes, wrapping paper on the floor, and all those holiday wishes just went right out the door. Your new clothes won't fit, needles falling off the trees, and the instructions for the swing set are written in Chinese. (laughs) Make a pile of returns for Amazon Prime. Maybe, just maybe, it'll be better next time. Twas the day after Christmas. No more sleigh bells jingle. No more Mariah Carey and no more Kris Kringle. It was fun. It was nice, but the joy didn't last. The hope of heavenly peace is now just a ghost of Christmas past. So we sigh and say goodbye to our holiday cheer. It's now back to real life. Maybe it'll be better next year. Christmas comes with some disappointment, doesn't it? And life is rigged with disappointment. When you waste four hours of your existence watching the Colts blow a (laughs) 33-point lead. How long, Lord, you know? Man, the world is broken, isn't it? (laughs) Christmas comes with some disappointment and we know this feeling inside ourselves, don't we? We have this existential longing. We have inside of us this thirst for satisfaction because deep down inside, we all know this, we're not yet totally happy and we're not yet completely content because the world is not yet all that it should be. All is not yet well. And, and the subtle lie that we sometimes are tempted to believe, especially at Christmas time, I guess we could call it the myth of more, that, that just a little bit more will be enough to satisfy that longing deep inside of us. Just a little bit more, we think, you know? And we spend our whole lives saying that, just waiting for the next thing that we think will make us happy. You know, when, when I turn 18, then I'll be satisfied. When I when I get that promotion, when I buy that new Tesla, you know, when I, when I lose enough weight, then, then I'll be good. 
when I get married and have kids in the house, when my kids grow up and get out of the house, when I pay off the mortgage on the house, when I buy the second house down in Florida, when I can finally retire and the pressure is off, then, only then, I will be okay. Just a little bit more, we think. I don't have to stand up here today and make the case to you that the world is broken and that we're broken. I'm just gonna assume that we all kind of feel that already. And the world's gonna tell you that in order to fix it all, and even in order to fix yourself, you just need a little bit more. And it could be a little bit more of any number of things. Sometimes they'll tell you that what we need is just a little bit more political reform. Listen, I'm, I'm all for political reform, but if you listen to the promises of people as they campaign running for office in an election year, they're all basically saying the same thing. They're all saying, vote for me. I'm the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, put the government on my shoulders and let's see what happens. But you know, even if we had all the right legislation in the perfect system with just the right people and just the right offices, it still wouldn't fix the brokenness in the human heart. And so maybe the answer isn't more political reform. Maybe they'll tell you the answer is just the opposite. Maybe the answer is more individual freedom that we just need to set people free from rules and regulations and stipulations, set them free from the systems that are holding them back, allow each individual person to discover what would satisfy them in their own pursuit of happiness. And listen, I am very thankful that we have gotten rid of some systems of oppression in our country, and I pray that continues. But have you noticed that with increased individual autonomy has also come unprecedented levels of anxiety? And we're learning that when you give people a hundred different gender options to choose from, that's not freedom. That's marooning them on a wasteland of individualism, putting band-aids on bullet holes. And so maybe the answer isn't more political reform or more individual freedom. Maybe the answer, we're told, is the opposite of individualism. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe the answer is more relational fulfillment. Find a soulmate to complete you. But that's a lot of pressure to put on another person. There's a psychotherapist by the name of Dr. Esther Perel. She says this. She says, marriage used to be primarily an economic institution in which you were given partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. And we live twice as long. So we come to one person and we're basically asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise. And if you expect a relationship with another person to satisfy the cravings of your soul, you will crush them. And you'll never experience the intimacy that you crave. And so if the answer isn't more relational fulfillment, maybe the answer is just a little bit more mental health, like more mental health awareness. And, and listen, I, I'm thankful that we are paying more attention as a society to good psychology. I, I'm thankful for science and for good counselors and therapists. I talk to one regularly. It's helpful for me. It might be helpful for you too. But listen, even if we all had perfect self-esteem and we were all freed from our issues with our family of origin and we all got over our trauma and our anxieties, you know what? It still wouldn't fix the selfishness in my heart and we would just go around traumatizing each other all over again. And so maybe the answer is more economic parity, that it's just that the 
the gap between the rich and the poor is so wide that we don't have justice. But you know, even if we hit the reset button today and we neutralize the gap between the rich and the poor, I'm confident that within a year, some people would figure out how to exploit other people and we'd be rich and poor all over again because we haven't addressed the fundamental greed in the human heart. And so if the answer isn't more political reform and more individual freedom and more relational fulfillment and more mental health and more economic parity, maybe the answer is more physical health, right? That if we just had the right cures and the right supplements and the right essential oils and the right medicines and the right plastic surgery and the right fast metabolisms and tummy tucks and steroids and hair dye and denture cream and new clothes, like even if we doubled the human life expectancy like we have over the last couple hundred years though, it still wouldn't fix the problem because the fact is surface level solutions don't fix soul level problems. And so maybe the answer then is quite simply we just need more financial cushion. Maybe we trick ourselves into thinking we just need a little bit more money. If I just had more finances to make it up to that next level, then I'd be good. It reminds me of a story, maybe you've heard it, of John D. Rockefeller. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world during his day. And he was asked one time, how much money is enough money? And he said, just a little bit more. Problem is more wealth won't fix us because our fears always outrun our money. And we could go on and on and on today. You could name your category, but the lie is the same. The world will tell you that longing, yeah, just a little bit more and then it will be satisfied. Then you'll be good. Then your soul will be fulfilled. But if you believe that, I hope you know by now that you're being sold a bill of goods. That's not how life works. More will never be enough. It's like, a, it's like this bowl of cheese puffs. Let's say, hypothetically, that you walk in here and you're really hungry. I mean, you're just like, you're famished. And, and, and right next to you, in the seat next to you, is a bowl of cheese puffs. And so you, maybe you start to crave these little orange chemical balls, right? And <laughs> so you, you grab a handful and you pop them in your mouth. And let's be honest, they're not great, but they're not bad. And it kind of takes the edge off the hunger a little bit. And so, well, you reach over and you pop another handful. And it's even less satisfying than the first handful was, but even though they're not good, at least they're not filling. And so, so you eat another one and, and another handful and another handful after that until eventually you're eating them, not because you want more, not because they taste good, but just because they're there, right? Anybody else ever been there? Or am I the only one? Public shame, great, thank you. Um, and, 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 and pretty soon, like you get to the point, you're 75 cheese puffs in. And be honest, are you feeling particularly good about yourself at that moment? No, right? Like you might not be hungry anymore, but you're not satisfied. There's a difference, right? Psychologists say why. Um, they call it the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns. We all know this to be true. If you, maybe you've heard addicts talk about how they have to go further and further and further just to get to the level of their very first high. The law of diminishing returns. It applies in every area of your life. It applies with money and success and, 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 and stuff. It applies with romance. Like, think back to your very first kiss. Think back to your first kiss. Like you're nervous, you know? didn't quite know what to do. You got really, really excited and you thought about it for like days afterwards, right? It was thrilling. Now be honest, those of you who are married, do you still get that feeling every time you kiss your spouse? Be careful how you answer that today, okay? 
And if we're honest, no. It, it doesn't feel like it did. That's called the law of diminishing returns. And so the world will tell you, when the thrill wears off, just grab another handful, go further, do more, keep chasing it. We have it hardwired into our laws as a country, the pursuit of happiness. The law of diminishing returns. And so the world will tell you that if you weren't satisfied, you just gotta chase a little bit more. You know, the Bible also has a word for the myth of more. It's called greed. You're familiar with greed, right? We see it personified this time of year, that old Ebenezer Scrooge or the lean, mean, green Mr. Grinch whose heart was two sizes too small. You might think, yeah, sure, that's not me. But scripture says the essence to greed is an addiction to more. And Paul says that actually beneath greed, there's something a little more deadly. He says it like this in Colossians chapter three, verse five, Paul is writing to the church and he says, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, notice he says, which is idolatry. Idolatry, that's a big fancy church word. Now when you hear that word idolatry, maybe your mind goes back to the Old Testament when God gave his people the 10 commandments. And the first two of the 10 commandments were about idolatry. God said to his people in Exodus chapter 20, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them. And maybe you're thinking, okay, woof, I'm good. I haven't bowed down to any little statues in my living room lately, right? But the Bible says idolatry actually goes deeper than that. That your, your God isn't necessarily a statue. I've heard it said before that your God, your little G God, is whatever you can't get enough of. It's this addiction to, to more. It's, it's chasing something other than God for satisfaction. That's idolatry. There was an ancient follower of Jesus by the name of Augustine, and he said that the human heart is on a constant search for satisfaction, that your heart is like a heat-seeking missile, just looking to be satisfied. And Augustine discovered in his own life that you know, a promotion at work or a new house or a great vacation or a beautiful time in the bedroom or having successful kids will feel good for a moment, but it will ultimately only leave you wanting more. It's like drinking salt water trying to satisfy your thirst. And so Augustine, in the face of this dissatisfaction, he said to God, he said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He knows that idolatry, just handful after handful of cheese puffs, was never going to satisfy you. In fact, it'll do just the opposite. It'll rot you from the inside out. In 2005, the novelist David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, he was not a believer, but he described the danger of idolatry like that. In a graduation speech he gave at Kenyon College, Wallace said this. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious, they're default settings. Sadly, not long after giving this speech, David Foster Wallace committed suicide. More will never be enough. There's a pastor in New York City by the name of Tim Keller who frames sin in terms of idolatry, this quest for more, looking for something other than Jesus for satisfaction. And he says that in our particular cultural moment, sometimes it's helpful to talk about sin less as doing bad things you shouldn't do and more as turning good things into ultimate things. And he uses the hypothetical example of of a young woman who's sleeping with her boyfriend. And, And he says that, Rather than going up to her and saying, you're sinning because you're sleeping with your boyfriend and that's a bad thing to do, which is true, he would say, actually, you're sinning because you are looking to romance to give your life meaning and identity and purpose that only God can give you. And, and that kind of idolatry, the idolatry of romance is not going to lead you to fulfillment and peace. Instead, it's actually going to lead you to anxiety and control and envy and regret and resentment and disappointment. And if you spend your life chasing fulfillment in the area of romance, it won't set you free. You will actually become a slave to that desire. You will need more and more and more of it to make you feel safe and known and wanted and loved. And Jesus offers you not only forgiveness for that sin, but freedom from that slavery to the idol of romance. It's a beautiful truth. And this applies in any area of our lives, of course, but, but think back specifically to Jesus' life with this idol of romance. Jesus was single, he was celibate, never had a lover, he lived a life of complete purity, even though he was tempted in every way that we are. And the world would look at Jesus' life and say, whoa, he never chased fulfillment in romance, never like gave in to sexual gratification and all those things. Like, think of all he missed out on. But tell me, when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus' life, is that what you think? Now, regardless of whether you're single or married or not, when you look at Jesus' life, a life of peace and power and purpose and fulfillment and joy and intimacy with God the Father and security and confidence, don't you want that? It's not as if he was missing out on something. There's something deeply attractive about a life that is satisfied in God whatever your situation in life is, a life that is built not on idols, not looking to something else to satisfy you, but a life built on God. And yet we all still feel these urges inside of us, right? right? To, to, to look for something else, to want something else. We feel the, the pang of disappointment. We feel the urge for more. So what do we do with those desires when they come? Uh, C.S. Lewis said, creatures are not born with desires, unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. The reason 
that more will never be enough is that this world was not meant to satisfy your hunger. It was only meant to whet your appetite. Ecclesiastes chapter three says that God has set eternity into the human heart. God has designed discontent into the system of this life so that you would not lose your hunger for him. And so we're two thirds of the way through the sermon and we finally arrived at our text for the day. Isaiah chapter 55. This is God's invitation to his people. This is God's invitation to you today. He says, come, all you who are thirsty, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. In other words, God's saying, hey, leave the cheese puffs behind, Because there's a steak dinner available to you. (laughs) Both of these will fill you. But only one will satisfy. In Eric's sermon last week, he left off in Isaiah chapter 53, where the prophet Isaiah is foretelling what Jesus will do through his death and his resurrection. And Isaiah says that when Jesus dies for us, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Jesus did in his death, but of course we know Jesus didn't stay dead three days later, he rose from the grave, the tomb is empty, and Isaiah talks about that too in verse 11. He says that after Jesus has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And so now, because Jesus died and rose again because of his victory over a world that is plagued by sin and death and diminishing returns, after Isaiah 53, in Isaiah chapters 54 and 55, Isaiah extends an invitation to the whole world, an invitation to you to come and experience satisfaction in Jesus. Isaiah says, hey, don't, Don't settle for the cheap stuff. Don't settle for diminishing returns that will only leave you hungrier and thirsty than you were before. Come to Jesus and be satisfied. Apart from God, Isaiah says our souls are, they're hungry, they're thirsty, that we're slaves to idolatry, that we're slaves to this myth that more will be enough. And into a world that is hungry and thirsty for satisfaction, Jesus steps up and he announces, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. And everyone who drinks from me will never be thirsty again. And the best news is, That Isaiah just said in verse one, he said, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. In other words, the water that satisfies, the milk that nourishes, the wine that delights, the bread that fills, the steak dinner for your soul is completely and totally free. It's not to say it was cheap. 
Jesus paid for it with his life, but now he offers it to you as a free gift of grace that will satisfy every longing of your heart, a life with God where every one of your deepest desires is finally and fully and completely met in him. It is a free gift of God's grace. Romans chapter six says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Merry Christmas, church. So here's my, uh, here's my sermon in a sentence for today. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That line's not original to me. It's from a great preacher by the name of John Piper, but I love it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Practically speaking, here's what that means for your life. That means that you won't become a better spouse just by listening to the right marriage podcast and having a regularly scheduled date night. Those things are fine and good. But you will become a better spouse when you are so completely satisfied in Jesus and your heart is fully alive in him that will free you up to love your spouse even when they disappoint you and let you down and do that thing over and over and over again that they've been doing for years now and they won't stop doing it and you're free to love them anyway because you don't need them to fulfill you. And... And you won't become a better parent, the parent that God made you to be, just by reading all the books and going to all the seminars and getting your 10 perfect tips for the right sleep schedules and how to discipline your kids. Those things are fine. But you will become the parent that God made you to be when your heart is completely satisfied and at rest in Jesus Christ, when you can honestly pray Psalm 23, 1, that because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. I shall not want. I lack nothing. And I'm so content in him that that will free me up to love my kids no matter what, even when they profoundly disappoint you. And, and you'll be able to face retirement well without some kind of existential identity crisis. And you'll be able to face your career well. And not when you have the perfect job and the perfect role and the perfect title and the perfect paycheck and work that matches your passions and you feel like you're making a difference in the world and a great retirement account that's growing. You'll face your career well, not when you have all that, but when you are so completely at rest in Jesus that you don't need a job to give you your identity. You're just confident that you're using your gifts to serve his kingdom and not your own success. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let me give you three quick things that Isaiah gives us here about how to be satisfied in Christ. Three quick things. Number one, Isaiah says, be satisfied in his covenant mercy. Verses three through seven, the Lord says, give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not and nations you did not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. To our God, for he will freely pardon. So God's saying here, he's saying, hey, I made a promise. 
I made a covenant to my people that I was gonna send a king from David's family to restore my relationship with them and I did that by sending Jesus as a baby born of a virgin, born to teach, to show the world who I am, to die, to rise again and to reign over all things as king of kings and lord of lords. And now God says to us that we get to seek him. We get to enter into a relationship with him under the rule of King Jesus and he promises, hey, when you seek me, you will find me. When you knock, the door will be opened and when you open that door, you will meet my mercy. You have been ushered into a relationship with a king whose mercies are new every single morning. And God's grace is Niagara Falls pouring into the Dixie cup of your heart. And he's in a covenant with you. He's in a promise that he's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. He's never gonna slam the door on you. He's never gonna change the terms of the arrangement, decide he doesn't like you or get tired of you. Be satisfied that God's covenant mercies will never fail you. Be satisfied in his covenant mercy. Here's the second thing. Be satisfied in his effective word. I love this promise here. It's one of my favorite ones in scripture. I rest on it every time I preach. God says this in verses eight through 11. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Be satisfied in God's effective word. Um, You know, way back in the beginning, in the garden, Adam and Eve, they chose to reject the word of God, to ignore it. They reached out for the myth of more, believing that the forbidden fruit would satisfy their souls and newsflash, it didn't. Cheese puffs never do. And during Jesus' life on earth, he was offered that same temptation. In the desert, Jesus was fasting for 40 days and Satan came to tempt him, to offer him shortcuts to satisfaction. And Satan whispered to him, he said, hey, Jesus, man, you don't have to die on the cross to be king. Just bow down to me real quick. I'll give it all to you. Satan whispered, he said, Jesus, you don't have to endure the hardship of being mocked and doubted and beaten. Just jump off the temple, show them who you really are. Satan said, listen, Jesus, I know you're hungry, man. How about you turn those rocks into bread real quick? I I know you can do it. Satisfy your hunger. Take the easy way out. But Jesus wasn't about to eat the cheese puffs. Every time Jesus was tempted, he quoted scripture back at Satan. He leaned into the satisfaction of God's effective word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter four, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You can't have satisfaction in Jesus apart from a daily relationship with his effective word. I hope you'll make that one of your habits in the new year. Be satisfied in his covenant mercy. Be satisfied in his effective word. And here's the third thing. Be satisfied in his transformative peace and his transformative peace here's the thing about disappointment I have a lot of situations in my life that I'm disappointed in I have things that have happened to me that I'm disappointed in I have people that I'm disappointed in you all do we all do but the key thing about disappointment is that 
the reason we're disappointed has less to do with what's outside of us and more to do with what's inside of us because the source of most of your problems in life is you. Nobody has hurt you more than you have hurt you. Nobody has lied to you more than you have lied to yourself. You are the source of habits that you can't break and emotions that you don't like and regrets that you can't move past and resentments that you can't let go of. But the promise of Christmas, when Jesus was born and the angels showed up and they said, hey, we got good news of great joy, this is for all people. The good news of great joy is that when you enter into a relationship with God and his covenant mercy, shaped by his effective word, you get Jesus's transformative peace. That when you walk with Jesus, it's not a piece where he says, there, there, glad you're here. It's a piece where he says, hey, you can rest now and I'm gonna make you like me as I make all things new. Isaiah gives us a brief vision of Jesus's transformative peace to us as individuals and to all of creation. He says in verses 12 through 13, he says, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Isaiah is saying that in Jesus, the law of diminishing returns actually works backwards. It gets better and better and better as we go along that as we walk with Jesus, he re-aims our hearts and our cravings and our desires to be toward him. And every time we taste a little bit of him and we think, man, I can't get any better than this, all of a sudden it does. And he gives us more of him and more of him and more of him again for all of eternity. And in this life, our experiences with Jesus, the best moment of worship and communion and intimacy with God that you've ever had is still just a tiny little glimpse is still just an appetizer of the moment when he returns and we finally see him face to face and every longing of our heart is gonna be fully satisfied in him as he makes all things new. And so my encouragement to you is until that day, while we are still wrestling, don't settle for anything less than him. Rest in his mercy, seek him in his word, be transformed by his peace. Let him shape you and rest in the knowledge that he is making you like himself as he is making all things new and he will be glorified in you as you are satisfied in him. So maybe just really practically in the meantime, when we feel that urge for more, when we feel the pangs of disappointment, when we feel like we're wanting something, like our heart is not at peace, not satisfied, not at rest, maybe we can just become people who practice saying, no, you know what, I'm good. I'm okay, I have enough, and God will be glorified in me as I'm satisfied in him. Like really practically, that means when you walk out of here today and you go get in your vehicle and you wish for a nicer, newer car, you think, nope, I have enough, this'll do. And when you go home to your house that you wish was a nicer, cleaner, bigger house, you think, no, I have enough, this'll be all right. And when you open your Christmas presents and they didn't get you the right ones and you didn't get the thing you wanted and you wish for a little bit more and you think this is it, you can say, no, you know, I have enough. That'll do. And when your spouse disappoints you and they let you down, you can look them in the eyes and you say, yeah, you're good enough. (laughs) Don't do that. It's just making sure you're awake, okay? (laughs) I don't know about you, but I, I hear this. 
And I, like, I want this. Man, I want a heart that is satisfied and at rest and fully alive in Jesus. But I don't know about you, I'm not there yet. Man, like the transformative peace, like sometimes I wonder, Jesus, are you changing me? I don't really feel peace and my relationship with God's effective word isn't what I want it to be yet. And I'm not there in my intimacy with God and my satisfaction with him. And sometimes I doubt his covenant mercy. Is it still enough for me? And I don't know about you, but my heart is still fickle and I'm still weak in faith sometimes. And so if you're feeling any of that today, the good news is that this meal is for you. This is why we do this every week. At the last supper with his disciples, when Jesus took this, he said, truly I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what that means is that every week, we take communion together, we receive this together to look backwards, the body that reminds us, the, the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body nailed to the cross, the juice that reminds us of Jesus' blood that poured forth from his side to wash us clean in the sight of God. We look backwards and we thank God for that. We also look inwards to our own hearts and we bring our sin and our brokenness and our weakness and our lack of faith before the Lord and we say, help us again, I need your blood all over again, Jesus. We look backwards, we look inwards, but we also look forward to that day, like Jesus said, when we will eat and drink with him anew in his Father's kingdom, when we will see him face to face, and at that meal, around that table, at the wedding banquet of the Lamb, we will be satisfied. And I don't know about you, but I want that. So I'm gonna give you a moment to receive the bread on your own. And would you just ask Jesus to make this enough to help you be satisfied in him? And then we'll pray and we'll receive the cup together. Father, we thank you for sending your son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life completely at peace in you, and then to lay down that life for us. Jesus, we can't wait for you to get back. And until then, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But right now, we're just trying to muster what little faith we have together. Again, to say that you are enough. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is the blood of Christ. Would you stand with us? Yeah.